Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Hello, friends. Returning champion to the show, Carly Flumer joins me here in studio to ask me questions. We flipped the script, and I gave her autonomy for an Ask Me Anything episode of Out of Patience. She is a two-time metastatic refractory thyroid cancer survivor who's dedicated her entire life to patient advocacy, specifically for the adolescent and young adult cancer community. She was a scientific data analyst at the National Cancer Institute, and she basically ran all senior administrative coordination at Innova Health Systems. She walks the walk, she talks the talk, and you're in store for a great show. I'm in the hot seat this time. Let's get started. Carly Flumer! I'm back! You are back. Oh my God, it's so good to see you. Good to see you too. It's just like another wonderful, like nostalgia moment yes. about relationships and friendships from the club that it kind of sucks to really be a part of, but uh-huh. you just make friends for life. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So this show is a kind of a young adult cancer retro throwback episode because just, just last night for the listener's sake, Uh, As of today's recording, I attended Stupid Cancer's 15th anniversary birthday party. That's huge. It was really big, and I feel really old. No. (laughs) But congratulations. That's a huge accomplishment. I was so happy to be there. And this is going to may sound weird or or anti-ego, but of the 150-some-odd people that were there, no one knew who I was, and I was really happy about that. Because I stepped away almost four years ago to give it the life it needed without me tethered to it. And that new leadership, new culture, I mean, I was aging out. I was probably way more aged out. I think when I turned 40, I christened the Young Adult Cancer Alumni Society. And then now, how relevant could I be to an 18-year-old? So the whole organization really just followed the you know generational cues. And as much as I hate the fact that the room was packed with 20-somethings with cancer, sure. I was happy they were there and they had a home and everything is still carrying forward with the momentum we'd hoped would happen. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So you're here to ask me questions. I am. Yes. Yeah, so fire away. Oh, my gosh. Well, how did you get started with stupid cancer? I don't know the origin story. Are you serious? How many years have I known you? I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right. So this part of the conversation, (laughs) well, again, most of my listeners know that I was diagnosed with brain cancer in college 
and given, you know, the whole proverbial six months to live, mm-hmm. like, fucking nice PR headline. And 27 years later, they can go fuck themselves. Sure. So, <laughs> you know, aging is, is, is a blessing in disguise, but Absolutely. it's a good problem to have. Yes. And I used to fix computers. I used to play piano. I had a whole life plan for myself at 21 years old. Got shot to shit. But I found out once I knew I kind of maybe wasn't dying that I just got a job that I hated to have because I had other plans in the works that got, again, shot to shit. I spent like five or six years working in old school advertising, like Don Draper without the sexism. You know, I mean, maybe it was the 90s. Could have been, you know, residual shitness that wouldn't work well today. And in doing so, I, I managed to find like a new cadre of friends mm-hmm. who didn't know I had cancer. Mm-hmm. And in the 90s, it was still a stigma. It was a whisper campaign. You thought it was contagious. It was crazy to think that by today's standards. But I got to meet all these people who didn't know I was sick, who didn't judge me, who I didn't feel judged by. And just getting that career started gave me a whole new lease on life. And it was only until I discovered Livestrong in the earliest days, in its heyday before they fucked it all up because Lance was you know, what a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. And I'm on the record of that. You know, <laughs> you know, for what it's worth, they threw the baby out with the bathwater. But what resulted of that was this young adult coalition that came out of it, which inspired me to start Stupid Cancer. I just felt like the voice of, you know, the Gen Xers back then, we were in our 20s back then, mm-hmm. wasn't heard. It was all about little baby Timmy and little grandpa Herbie, you sure. know, and nothing mattered to us from an age appropriate perspective. And someone had to do something about it. So the scientists got on board, the advocates got on board, the policy groups got on board, but there was no marketing person to get on board. So I built Stupid Cancer to service this sort of cultural brand that could be angry and pissed off and funny and not about Hallmark cards, wristbands, and ribbons. And that's how it got started. That's amazing. Well, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I appreciate that. So... How do you think it, how far do you think it's come in terms of what you would hope it, what you would hope it would be or is it all that you hoped it would be? History is a teacher. Uh-huh. And I always look back at what was, what wasn't and it's hard to compare objectives and goals over 20 years without looking at where we were mm-hmm. and what is success, you know, 20 years later. Mm-hmm. One thing I could share with you and with with my listeners is that in 2004, mm-hmm. when all of this kind of started to coalesce and I got sucked out of advertising into policy work, that the phrase young adult cancer wasn't even in the research. Mm. It wasn't in the, the publications. It wasn't part of IRB studies. It didn't exist as a term. And part of the manifest of the young adult alliance that Livestrong gave birth to was to first define the research protocols of what is young adult cancer. It took several years, but it eventually trickled into ASCO and ONS and all the the acronym cancer organizations that listeners may or may not know what those mean, but that, that was progress. Mm-hmm. The little thing like that we could stare at, you know, five years afterwards in like 2007 and say, all right, mission accomplished for that one. And then- what is age-appropriate care in what we used to call psychosocial well-being, right? Which is now mental health. Mm-hmm. Psychosocial is, that's the academic, sciencey nerd way of saying 
can this suck less for your brain and your life, yeah. not your biology? Sure. So working with researchers and psychologists and psychiatrists, there was a group called the Association of Psychosocial Oncology that was started that paved the way for how your quality of life had to become tantamount to your quantity of life or quality of care. So that is another really big thing, treating people based on their age first and their biology second. I would look at another huge win for young adults being the Affordable Care Act. That was obviously something that was already on the plate with Romney Care when he was the governor of Massachusetts and when Obama took over, he wanted to export that and negotiate as imperfect as it was. It's it's kind of an insurance bailout, but it did the one thing that mattered most to Gen X and millennials at that time, which is no pre-existing condition for the rest of your life. Yeah. And when you're as fucked up as you are, having had cancer in your single digits, your teens, your 20s, the last thing you want is to be judged based on a history you didn't ask for. That was a massive win. And one more that I'll put in terms of how to, how to go. How's it going? Breast cancer in young women was never really taken seriously from an age-appropriate perspective because mammograms only worked in less dense breast tissue post-menopause. But groups like Komen and the Young Survival Coalition and the Living Beyond Breast Cancer groups all rallied to build policy piggybacking on the Affordable Care Act. I mean, again, creature of history here. And they put in a uh, omnibus spending pork thing Pork is usually a bad thing. This was a good one that lowered the age of screenings to 40 for the first time since mammograms were invented and screening was invented by screening guidelines were invented by X, Y, and Z. And what that did was that forced the diagnostics companies to change their mammogram tools to account for denser breast tissue in premenopausal women who may be over 30. And that gave a huge open door to let's try to not get breast cancer, not just at 50, at 40, but it also did one really important thing. It guaranteed federal protections and full coverage for reconstruction for the rest of your life. Wow. If you have a mastectomy under 40 years old, you are going to be it's almost like recompense mm -hmm. for having to do harm in Hippocrates' world. It's called iatrogenic medicine, just jargony jargon. You can get free reconstruction for the rest of your life to preserve your, your identity as someone who values that the public-facing part of that body. And it was a women's health initiative. It was a federal health policy initiative. It forced insurance companies to do these things. What I just thought, those four or five little things well, that's just up to 2014. Mm -hmm. That I look back and say, holy shit, that was the groundwork that needed to happen. And I think about what is mission accomplished with asterisks. You're not going to stop young adults from getting cancer. But the number of young adults who are getting cancer today is, is uh, population adjusted and apparently around the same. Mm -hmm. So we're not getting more cancer but ideally we're being treated better, again, with an asterisk.
Sure. I was going to ask, um, how do you feel hospitals are doing in terms of placing patients in a specific AYA segment of care as opposed to the pediatric unit versus the older adult unit? Because some hospitals, they do have young adult wards for, for teens, but some hospitals do not recognize that. We talked about the third door as a metaphor back in the in the 2000s, that there's kids, there's adults, and there should be an AYA door. Sure, yes. And it really wasn't until like the age of genomic medicine where they realized that giving young adults pediatric protocols, like give the 20-something, the eight-year-old chemo, had them live better and live longer. Mm-hmm. And the adult oncologist who was treating that 22-year-old would never know to give that young adult a pediatric protocol because they don't live in pediatric oncology. Mm -hmm. So once it was figured out that there's more money to be made by prescribing the right medicines to patients, then there was an unofficial subspecialty created out of pediatric oncology, which was kind of nicknamed KAYAK, K-A-Y-A-K, Kid Adolescent Young Adult Cancer, or sorry, K-A-Y-A-C, not like the boat. (laughs) And, you know, it's kind of like an unspoken, uncertified but there are now pediatric oncologists who have extended the age mm. of the clinic up into 28. Wow. So, but not every hospital has the third door, sure. rhetorically speaking. And it's been difficult to get that wide adoption because mm-hmm. of just different perceptions, different um, skepticism. And do they see enough young adults at that hospital sure. to justify the expense of this? Because it's, I say only with love. There's still only 80,000 or so of us diagnosed under 40 every year, which is like 5% of all cancer diagnoses. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people, but out of 1.9 million a year, mm-hmm. we're a loss leader. Mm-hmm. Like pediatrics is a loss leader mm-hmm. to the, the fundamental capitalistic nature of our fucked up healthcare system. But I'd like to think that more oncologists who have moved from just peds to peds and young adults and adolescents per se are more acutely aware of the age relevance mm-hmm. of their patients and that that just doesn't trickle into their mental health and their psychosocial and all these other spiritual, economic, financial career, but into their medical treatment. If there is a genetic test, if there's a biomarker test, if there's a chemotherapy trial that they know has better outcomes in young adults, which is for kids, mm-hmm. they will know that's the first line you get instead of that. So that's my optimism, which is rare, but that's my optimism. Um, So I listened to an episode that you recently did on clinical trials. Thank you for being my listener. Yes, I loved it. Um, She was brilliant. I can't remember. Celine. Yeah, Celine, who runs Mass Bio. Yes. Um, And you know them? I don't, but now I, you do. I do, uh, but I work in patient recruitment and clinical trials as well. And so I was wondering the trials are usually for patients who are 18 and above, and they're not usually for a specific group of adolescents and young adults. I don't think I've ever seen a trial that's specifically for adolescents and young adults. So how do you think that plays into what you just talked about? Well, trials used to be way over 18. Mm. Trial Getting trial awareness, getting trial recruitment standards and guidelines, which are messy in general, sure. down to 18 was a huge, that, that's another young adult cancer advocacy policy research thing. You Mm -hmm. work with the system to find the loopholes, honestly, where the profit is. And if you lower the guidelines to 18, you'll get more because it's now about genetics Mm. and not about biology. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So just because a young adult may have lung cancer, it doesn't matter that they're 18, they have lung cancer. Yeah. So you need the data into the registries to figure out the drug development. So it's just extending the population to, you know, above minors mm-hmm. because the data pool is now almost irrelevant to how old you are. Mm-hmm. So that's my that's my take on that there's value there because again, you look at you know, not a sponsor, Ketruda, for example. Ketruda, you know, printing money these days. Yes. Because every time they find something else that cures or helps, boom, there you go. An 18-year-old will get Ketruda as much as an 80-year-old will get Ketruda because of their genomics. So, again, it's an odd win because it's now about your DNA and not your geography of your cancer like it used to be. So, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean— I flipped it. I know. <laughs> I mean, I would like to see— a trial that's specifically for adolescents and young adults or that has a, a segment that is like a like an objective that focuses on adolescents and young adults specifically. I've participated in clinical trials that are focused on quality of life, and that's huge, especially for thyroid cancer that I was- Which you had. I did have, and I talked about that on my last episode. Please listen to it if you would like to. Well, we will link to the Carly <laughs> Flumer takes no shit episode in the in the show notes. Yes. So I and quality of life, that's that's just something that I don't think doctors focus on enough either. What do you think about that? I see I flipped it on you again. <laughs> well, all right. So cliffhanger, we're going to take a quick break and be right back with the illustrious, prestigious Carly Fluor. Ah. <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch. Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right. My brain is um, made of pudding these days. Okay. So reframe your last question. Okay, so I was just asking about um, the quality of life aspect of cancer and how how it's perceived by doctors, because I think they're really focused on 
the biologics of cancer and not not so much the quality of life or they're not focused on the, like the values and the morals of the patient they're really more focused on the cure which may or may not happen right i want to save that other part for later in sure. the show okay i work a lot in the nerdy you know sub basements of value based care now mm-hmm. you know not we just lost half the listeners i said value based care they're all gone <laughs> they're, what the hell is, i'm done jargon goodbye but what that basically means is a combination of how do you keep the patient happy and functional and well and not going broke, not just clinically, but through experience. Mm-hmm. I kind of sum that up in my own sure. version of, of the, that way. And we look at this age of like digital therapeutics. And what that means is like, here's an app that keeps you sane on top of your medicine. And quality of life back in the day was peer-to-peer support. Mm-hmm. And today, that is a digital platform of meeting other people like you. There's all this genuinely published peer-reviewed data to suggest that meeting someone that is like you is good for your well-being. So that fundamental understanding of peer-to-peer is quality of life. Mm-hmm. And there are apps that do that. There are more cancer apps than ever now. Tinder for Cancer is like every platform. Yes. Uh, maybe without the dating part. But just, <laughs> I don't think so. But just, have you seen things I haven't seen? I have not. <laughs> oh, come on. Your profile's out there. I know it is. <laughs> the whole point is that this idea of uh, your mental state, you're not fear of going broke, you're keeping your job, you're being able to work, there's a trial near you, helps you live your life as just an economic contributor to society. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't take you out of the workforce, it doesn't put you on disability, it costs the government less that you have this capacity to function while you're still in treatment. So they're going to need more quality of life metrics and data to substantiate that it's almost like a, a non-contraindication. Mm-hmm. If you live better over here, you'll be more compliant, you'll be more adherent, and irrespective, ideally, if your doctor has empathy or not, mm-hmm. you become a little more empowered to take control of your choices. Yeah. If you were diagnosed with cancer today, how would you be? How would you like to be treated differently than you were back then? I mean, I'm an old fuck now. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, so this actually speaks to long-term side effects, right? Mm. I mean, if it were me, sure. you know, I look great, says my wife, but don't look under my hood because that's a goddamn mess, right? I heard that in your episode with the paper boy. I can't remember. With the rare disease. Yeah. Yes. Never look under the hood. Yes. That's exactly it. Like clean up nice and never look under the hood. For, you know, millions of Americans who have had cancer, it cure doesn't really mean anything. Yes. It just means biologically it's not killing you anymore. Sure. But there's a boat wake of consequence for having gone through like Chernobyl, easy bake ovens and, you know, sterility driven chemotherapies and relapses. You're kind of scarred and marred mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and mentally disbarred. Sure. I just made that up. I like that. I'm I do use like that. it. Yes. <laughs> so having cancer in an age where you've already had it just adds so many more complications. Mm-hmm. And especially if you are a young adult or a peed who had it years ago, where are your medical records? Oh, they're on a post-it note somewhere in the ocean, right? No one kept records back then. Mm-hmm. How do we even know if I were just an ordinary Joe citizen that got some kind of leukemia or whatever, colon cancer in their late 40s, I wouldn't know mm-hmm. what to do because I don't hope to get cancer one day. Sure. 
it's like um, think of healthcare as a, as a Walmart that you never want to enter. Mm-hmm. But what's on the shelf, someone else controls. Yeah. And if you want that, someone tells you how much you can pay for it and what it's going to cost you to do it. So it's a very different, like, I can't wait to get cancer and listen to this podcast. You know, that's not how healthcare works. So if I'm just an unassuming citizen who gets this diagnosis, I'm in a position of my medical team, the internet, and utter blithering chaos. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how you have to kind of, you shouldn't have to hope that you know something. I mean, people that know me, like, thank God I know Matt because he told me these things, Sure, shouldn't have to know me yes. <laughs> as a determinant of whether you live or die. That was an indirect answer to your question. I think people are still kind of fucked when they get cancer. Mm-hmm. And like it, we're so much more aware of, you know, these determinants being like, are you black? Are you white? Are you gay? Are you Jewish? Are you in Utah? Are you where you are, where you live? Your whole life is led up to this moment that defines where you're going to be. In a year, mm-hmm. if you're at a major cancer center, no surprise, they probably have all this fancy concierge service. Sure. Mm-hmm. Rural America's 80% of trials and percentage of care. They don't have all the fancy schmancy harpists in the lounge, you know, <laughs> plucking those strings to make you feel better. So it's regrettable that this is still the case. But looking at progress, we're in a better spot to even be aware that this is the case. Mm-hmm. So with the COVID-19 pandemic, um, it brought... The what? To- I'm sorry. The- <laughs> the- Say that again. <laughs> I am unfamiliar with what you speak of. Well, you should listen to Vax On oh, by Matthew Zachary <laughs> <laughs> and Alora Nanos. Yeah. I love her. How that brought to light a lot of the, um, the shit in healthcare that has been going on. Do you think it's brought to light any shit that has gone in cancer as well? Because I know that... A lot of screenings had to stop for cancer. Now people are now just finding out because they had to stop screening. So do you think that it brought to light anything um, in the cancer world? Well, we actually did a a documentary series Mm. with the CDC a year and a half ago called The Big Screen, How COVID Fucked Everything Up. Mm. Okay, well, there you go. (laughs) For cancer patients. Yeah. And it talked about what was obvious. You know, everything shut down. There's nowhere to go to get screened. Yeah. And it's just going to move it's pushing everything a little, you know, you kick the can down the road a little bit, but it's just going to mean more people will get sick because they didn't get it when they could have gotten it mm-hmm. in the past. Mm-hmm. If there's any one good thing that COVID taught us, it's that people are more willing to adopt telehealth. Yes. But at the same time, going back to that rural America thing, you kind of need broadband yep. to use telehealth and AOL dial-up doesn't cut it anymore. No. And that's where many communities don't even have broadband. Mm-hmm. And their satellite platforms are kind of crappy. And there's all these security. There's, there's so much just like regular computer tech shit that doesn't work in rural America, let alone having broadband and the internet to use the telehealth that people are now willing to use. It, it kind of harkens back to eBay in the 90s. I'm not giving that guy my credit card. What's wrong with you? And now, like, I'm not going to talk to a doctor online. Why would I do that? And now, can I please talk to a doctor online? So that's a kind of a, an odd blessing. But the real reveal was that, no surprise, marginalized communities died more mm-hmm. than non-marginalized communities. So it just tore up an even a bigger hole of inequality facing our country. <laughs> I want to go back to what we talked about before, which is empathy in medicine. Okay. Right. 
I've, I've been talking about this for 20 years. Is it fair to expect your doctor to have what I would call congenital empathy? Mm. I would like to believe humanity is empathic, you know, uh, largely 80%, like a significant, we want to be, maybe not in New York, <laughs> maybe we want to be empathic and understand that our actions affect other people and, and kind of read emotions of other people. But not every human being that works in medicine is born that way. Mm-hmm. And do you want your doctor to be a therapist or a mechanic? Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know what? I want a mix of both. And I was very lucky to have a doctor who treated me for all three of my surgeries while I was going through treatment that really focused on my quality of life. And he asked me, what do you want as an outcome besides your cancer being gone? Like, what do you care about as a person? Um, and that really meant a lot to me. And quality of life, of course, was really important to me. So that's what I focus on. But I know that, that not all doctors are like that. And I've had that experience where I've been told you have to manage your side effects on your own. So it's it's difficult. Right. And this isn't like a broad brushstroke conversation, mm -hmm. but if you were to just anecdotally look at all the conversations I've had in 15 years yeah. doing radio, the vast majority are like, oh, just figure it out on your own. Yeah. Or there's nothing wrong with you. It's in your head. Mm -hmm. And I, I hate that that could be a reality. Sure. And it, I also think it's unfair to just expect the average person to just lurch into superhero mode on their own. Mm -hmm. When you, you're terrified, it's not a moment to stand up and say, hey, I care about this and you don't. But that's just human nature in real life. I think what you just exposed is optimism mm -hmm. that it is possible yes. <laughs> to have an empathic human being taking care of you who toes the line between just just emotional intelligence and me auto mechanic, you know, to just fix what's broken. Yeah, I think that's where the patient-provider relationship comes in um, because if, if you're looking for – it depends on what you're looking for, I think. I mean, I think as cancer patients, we're obviously looking to be treated and looking for a quote-unquote cure. But if you're, looking, if you're looking for specific things as a young adult – you know, ask about that of your provider. And if that's not what they're providing you, then maybe it's time to look for a second opinion or or go somewhere else. Or if you like this doctor, if you have a good relationship with them, maybe that might be a job of a caregiver to provide that empathy, you know? Well, that, that also speaks to, you know, I remember um, a colleague, a young adult cancer survivor, who I guess had her own moxie mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of going into the situation. Mm -hmm was thinking of her relationship with her care team as like, my company has saved my ass incorporated and mm -hmm. I'm hiring you to do that. Yeah. So she was able to say, no, I'm going to go somewhere else because you're not talking to me the way I want to be. You're not filling the job description I hired you for. Sure. But not everyone has that moxie going in, especially if it's an if it's like a, a rare disease or, yep. or a life-threatening chronic condition or cancer, mm -hmm. you're probably scared to death. Yes. And you're hoping that this is the right thing for you. And I, there's really been no national survey on how many people have fired their doctor. I would love to, that data. Yeah, um, I fired I fired one of my doctors. Um, You're the one. <laughs> Maybe. He was supposed to prescribe me radiation. And um, when I went in, he was like, how was the radiation? I was like, you didn't prescribe it to me yet. Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> So that was great. So I went to another doctor 
But it's just like keeping track of your records. And when you walk into when a doctor walks in the room, I don't want them to ask me. I don't want them to have to go over my record so many times and then ask me, oh, by the way, how are you doing? Like, no, take a second to look at you right. know, my chart, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Lightning round. Sure. We got two minutes left. How do you think healthcare is going these days in terms of, I mean, we just went through a pandemic. We're still in a pandemic. And then monkeypox and... Um, Space cancer is coming soon, by the way. Oh, is it? Yeah. Tell me more about that. Well, I mean, if it's not something of Earth that'll kill you, something from space will kill you. Okay. okay. Yeah. So the, the flying monkeys from Mars are going to come with space cancer. <laughs> um, no, but really, how do you think um, healthcare has evolved since you've been diagnosed? I mean, that's a 30-minute answer. Oh, well, that's true. But super quick, I have a cockeyed optimism that American citizens are more aware than ever about how fucked we get by healthcare. And there's, I wouldn't say a consumer awakening that there are ways to fuck back with the system, especially when it's in industry's interest more than ever to make sure every patient knows there's a thing that's right for them, mm-hmm. but everything kind of cock blocks them being aware of the thing that's right for them. Mm-hmm. So that's why things are just stuck in committee in market access. They're never going to see the light of the day. They'll never get reimbursed. But if you tell Americans that there's a way to just not get cancer these days because of the test you can take and you'll never get it, you'll have the good kind of rights in the street because it's unfair to our liberties, if I'm going to go all patriotic here, that we don't know that there's something we can get as consumers that can actually help us. Mm-hmm. And never before in our time have we had that chance to awaken the country Mm-hmm. in a very digestible way that here's where healthcare is going. And you're now being denied choices because there now are choices. So that's where I see optimism in the next couple of years because all these, these tests that are existing now with blood tests that can detect multiple things, they're going to be at Walmart yeah. in five years. But how do we get them at the Walmart? And we need American voters and American citizens to lobby to get that done. So that's my optimism in terms of where we are based on the last, what, 55 years? Mm-hmm. since the oh, No, I'm sorry. It was 51 years since the Cancer Act. So we're, in the next five, I think we'll do more than the last 50. Well, thank you so much for joining me on your show. Thank you for joining me on my show. My show? Your that show. May, well, I mean, whose show is it? Both of ours. It's both of our shows. Yes. Carly Flumer, thanks for coming on board again for number two on Out of Patience. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is an off-script health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. It's mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us. And we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.